Hey, y'all, if you're enjoying this podcast, take two seconds, send it to five friends. Um, some of the top episodes would be the self-confidence, masculinity, and the Byron Rogers podcast if you want to send uh, some of the top ones to them. Otherwise, just take 30 seconds and review it on whatever podcast uh, application you use, whether it be Spotify, YouTube, Google, iTunes, Amazon, any of them. Thank you. Today's podcast is brought to you by AssaultLimited.com. Even when you aren't saying anything, you're saying something. Let your gear say the right thing for you. That's where Assault Limited comes in. Assault Limited offers tactical versions of things you use every day. The Assault Pen is a great quality, intimidating looking pen with a pinpoint tip used for self-defense or to break glass. The Assault Spork has so many different tactical uses, we only have time to highlight a few. It's a spoon, a fork, a wrench, a carabiner, and a bottle opener. The possibilities are endless. The Assault Pencils and the Assault Straws... Well, they both look pretty badass, and they both tell political correctness to take a long jump off a short bridge. When you need things and you want them to be the best quality while issuing a statement to anyone else who sees, look at AssaultLimited.com. Also sponsoring today's podcast is Urban Savage, U-R-B-N-S-V-G.com. The best quality apparel available. American-made t-shirts and sweatshirts that fit great with the quality that will outlast the creepy battery bunny. The Date Night Tee, which is the badass's version of the subtle embroidered logo t-shirt that so many of us grew up with. And the hats are 100% American made, not just embroidered here like so many others. Ooh, and those sweatshirts are so damn comfy. The next time you're thinking about scoring a new piece of gear, remember to check out urbnsvg.com. Last but not least, today's podcast is brought to you by A3 Body Protectant. A3 was designed when Martin noticed that Hawaiian surfers who spend their entire lives in the sun had radiant, healthy skin. After plenty of awkward questions about how seriously they take their skin care, he learned the secrets. Hawaii's best kit secret is now available at A3Equip.com. That's A3 eqip.com a3 is a truly natural cream that can be used as a skin lotion a lip balm a hair conditioner honestly anywhere you want to keep moist and healthy get yours today at a3 eqip.com all doctors to the er do these guys have any idea what they are talking about talking about talking about Get squared away. Spiritual. Get squared away. Emotional. Get squared away. Mental. Get squared away. Physical. The podcast that'll help you get squared away. What an amazing story. We're here with Chris Donaldson, the author of The Wrong Way. And Chris grew up in uh, IRA Revolution, Belfast and decided to, to take his moto guzzi across Europe and the Middle East at about, what was it, about 20 years old, Chris? It's 1979, so I was about 21, yeah. Excellent. First of all, before we even get into the whole trip, what, what was it like growing up in that situation in Belfast? Well, looking back, it was pretty weird. Um, it was a sort of minor civil war going on at the time, really. Um, of course, when you're a kid, you don't know anything else because you've never experienced anything else. So we sort of thought it was normal enough to be looking out your school window and see bombs going off and having people getting shot every time you turn the news on. I guess it was only when I became a teenager that you sort of realized, well, actually, the rest of the world isn't all like that, you know? Yeah. And you, um, your, your father owned a furniture shop, right? Yeah, we had a furniture shop, um, Great Victoria Street, just down the road from the Europa Hotel, which is where all the... Uh, the journalists stayed for, for you know, from across the world. 
So the IRA were usually good enough to plant the bombs around about Europa so they didn't have to move too far from their hotel. So we usually got our windows put in whenever there's a bomb going off. And they seem to, from from what I understand from your book, they seem to kind of target um, retail businesses, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the theory was the, uh, the blip of business, the British government would have to pay the compensation and would compensate for the damage. And I guess furniture shops burnt well because furniture is quite flammable. So we sort of seem to be in the front line quite a bit, you know. <laughs> how, did the, how did the store owners go about? I mean, you, it has to get you down a little bit, right? Well, we would have done, yeah. I mean, you would have security guards on the door all the time, people searching people's handbags when they came in. There was a comp car bomb phase went through one time, so we weren't allowed to leave a car unattended anywhere. People had to sit in their cars. These days, terrorists would blow themselves up in their cars, but in those days, they, we bit, the terrorists were a bit more humane about it all. They usually left the cars and ran off, and uh, hopefully that left a warning. Uh, so it's different different things going on. But, uh, yeah, it was, again, it was a business-as-usal attitude. Um, there's a picture in my book of the uh, boarding up the shop front once, once after one bomb and Funny looking at it because they've got the business as usual sign up on the window before they they've even stopped hammering nails in, so they're still opening it for business. How long did that go? How how long did that go on? I guess it went on from a sort of late sixties right until the ceasefire, which is twenty five years ago, eighty ninety one or so ninety nine ninety eight ninety nine. So it went on for a long time. Uh, it certainly gave me a bit of impetus to get out of the country, but. As things would happen, I ended up coming back and living there the rest of my, most of my business life. Uh, sometimes wonder what would happen if I'd actually got to Australia as, as I intended to. I might have just stayed there and life would have been different. But things happen to you in your life outside your control, which obviously can have a huge impact in your life. You like to think you're in control of what you're going to do, but sometimes not. Life throws a, a wobbler in there and just sends you in a different direction. Right. What do you think growing up in that, how do you think that that affected you long-term? I think it probably made me more resilient to uh, problems and you get something thrown at you, you just get up and get at it again. And certainly that was the way that most business owners looked at uh, business in those days. You usually, if, you got, if your shop got blown up, you did get compensation eventually. Maybe take six months. You need a lot of effort, work and effort and strife to, to do it. But you did get open up again. Um, the important thing is nobody got killed or nobody got injured. Um, material things can always be put back and put right again. So we were very lucky in that respect. That, um, even though we were blown up dozens of times, nobody ever got injured. I remember listening to uh, uh, the book or a talk by Dan Harris, who wrote 10% Happier. And he was a... He was a war journalist in the beginning of his career, and he came back from war and noticed that he kind of chased that adrenaline high because he was after so many years of just being in the middle of bombs and gunfire and all of that. Do you think that that fueled any any of your kind of future escapades? I don't not not to know not to my knowledge not sort of and I don't I don't think so. It possibly did. Make me a bit more risk or less risk adverse. So I certainly went to places that I shouldn't have probably gone to, uh, if it had any sense. Um, but whether it was just whether it was the 
living in Belfast or whether it was just stupid and I'm not really too sure, but it did end up in some dodgy spots. Yeah, I'm I'm about three quarters of the way the book through the book, and wow, dodgy is not even described some of the spots that you ended up in. But before we get into that, where did this idea come from? Um, I remember one time listening to the reading motorcycle news, which was sort of I was a keen biker from the age of sixteen, even before my license. Um, I would have ridden a bike off the road and um been into taking them apart and putting them back together again. And I read somebody who was riding around the world on a the same model of BSA that I had. I thought, well, if you can do it, I can do it. So I sort of put the notion in my head. And then I realized, well, I'll finish my studies and was working part-time, managed to calculate up a few quid. And I thought, well, I'll try and get to Australia. Um, but a couple of relations there. And I thought, well, see what happens when I get there. It might be nice to drive, take a, try and get there on a motorbike rather than just flying. I think I wanted to sort of challenge myself as well, get out of the system a bit get out of the when you're growing up you're under your parents influence at the start and then your friends and family and in school obviously and um so i wanted just to get away and be my, be my own travel on my own and, and challenge myself on my own i think so many um so many cultures so many especially older cultures have a have a coming of age type ceremony that happens um we seem to have completely forgotten about that over here in the united states i don't know is that still have any prevalence anywhere in europe or is it just kind of dead there too pretty much dead here we're similar culture really the west it's surprising uh you go to different cultures the states the uk even europe uh australia the same culture so lots of same culture ideas flows through um Always wondered with furniture, with the likes of fashion, for instance, with furniture. Very often, if you'd see a fashion starting in the states, and then a year later it'd be in the UK, and then about a year later we'd get to Ireland. We're always a wee bit behind, but it's amazing how the same culture, the same ideas, and fashion or color would would work its way through the, the culture. And obviously, with clothing culture, clothing fashion it would work a lot quicker than that. You know, and today. With the internet and with much more instant communications, it probably happens a lot much quicker still. Is uh, I know you t- you talk about the the idea of walkabout. Is that even still uh, is that even still a thing in Australia? It is with the Ab- Aboriginal uh, community, I believe. Um, they would have had that as a coming of age ritual that they would go off and just wander the countryside, and even I think in their the. Uh, the culture adults would have gone walk about as not so much as a coming of age, but as a just a way of life. And I guess in the and we and the we still have sort of Romanian gypsy types uh, tenants would travel Europe in the same way as the old days of cowboys in the states would have wandered around the, the western um, area without fixed abode, if you like. So, but it's certainly it's not a it's not a way of life that the west would. Western culture would look as being a good thing to do anymore. Um, we would see that as being a waste of time. You should finish your studies and go to work and bring up a family and stay in one place. It's not a not a, a valued way of life anymore. Certainly, I don't think. Right, and I mean, if my I have two daughters, and if if one of my daughters came to me and said that she was just going to go explore even just inside the United States, she was just going to go explore the United States for six months or a year. Um, 
I don't even know as a parent how I would feel about that. It, I guess it would depend on how she is, right? I have, I have one daughter that's totally enamored with, with social media and will sit on her phone for two hours in a day. And then I have one who could, who could give a rat's ass. And if it was the one that could, who could give a rat's ass, I guess I could see her actually exploring the United States. Whereas, you know, a lot of the youth today, they, they don't even really explore their own backyard. Yeah. They're really just doing everything digitally. Yeah. I think that's the way the world has gone. And certainly to the older ones, we would, I would say that as being a terrible waste of a life that, uh, people are missing out what's going on in the world or watching, watching it and their screen rather than being out there and doing it. But I guess it's like when we were young, everybody, old guys always tell us when our day was better, you know, that we should have done it our way. But uh, it's, it's pro- progress, whether it's forward or backwards, it's still progressing. It's the way, it's the, way the world's going. I think COVID yeah, has no. had a lot to do with that as well. COVID had people stuck in their houses and did a lot of damage that way. Yeah, that was that was one of the nice things about being in a in a little bit more rural area in the Midwest of the United States. Stuff was still kind of shut down, but we could, you know, you could pretty much go do if you got out of the big city, you could pretty much go do anything yeah. that you needed to do. You weren't really locked down the way that I know a lot of big cities were completely locked down. Um, it's funny we talk about walkabout, and there's a there's a thing in the in the Amish culture, which in, around here I'm not sure if you're familiar with Amish, but yeah. Amish um, there's a thing called rumspringa. And Rumspringa is where a youth gets to a point where he or she, I think both of them get to partake, maybe just the boys, um, get to go out and live normal life. They, they, they get to use electricity and cars and all this stuff. And basically, it gives them a chance to realize that that is not necessarily going to make them any happier or any um, more sure of life. And then they can come back on their own terms and want to be part of the, of the culture. And I think that that would be amazing if we had some way to do that Yeah. today. Do, with do they youth. always go back? No, they don't. They don't always go back. Yeah. Um, but a majority do in the ones and, and you, you lose some, but I think the idea is, is you don't want somebody that doesn't want to be there yeah. anyways. That's true. That's true. You know, I mean, the idea of walkabout or walk, traveling the way I traveled, um, obviously I set off for Australia and because of the Iranian Revolution in 79, uh, sort of closed off the old road east, I ended up just traveling for the sake of traveling. And it's that's probably where the, the main difference is. 99% of the time you go traveling, you're going to a destination, you're going to New York, or you're going to Australia for a reason, for a holiday, or for work, or whatever it is you're you're traveling to go somewhere. Whereas I was traveling just for the sake of traveling, just to live by the day and, and travel for the sake of, of being there, which is gives you a completely different outlook on the traveling experience. So what was the original plan? So the original plan was, yeah, to go to Australia, uh, 79, October 79. Anybody's old enough to remember, it's, I think it was the 5th of November. Uh, the, the Islamic Revolution kicked off and the American embassy got overrun in Tehran. And basically, Western realized Western places weren't welcome in Iran. So I had already left home and got as far as London and I didn't want to go back. I've told it, telling all my friends who's going off around the world, didn't want to come back two weeks later. So I only got to London. So I decided to go to South Africa. Um, and of course, I had no idea what was in Africa, the Middle East or Africa. Um, 
seems weird now because if you want to find out about anywhere, you just Google it. Whereas pre-internet, it was all guidebooks, and all my guidebooks were for India and Asia. So, uh, so it was flying flying blind all the way down through the Middle East and across Africa. In fact, I got to the south of Sudan and I actually drove off the edge of my map. I had to, luckily met a guy coming north and we swapped maps and I could see what was going on further south. But it really was quite, uh, as I said, so it was bit, uh, wasn't so much, it was brave to go to the places I went to. It was just stupid because I didn't know what was there. It was just following, following my nose half the time. You, uh, you had one line in the book that, that really kind of hit me where you, you talked about um, somebody had mentioned that, that the Brits in an area were dictators, but without the Brits there, everybody was just stealing from everybody. Yeah. Um, I can't remember where. It might have been Sudan. Possibly, yeah. There was a, uh, an old guy who had uh, been there since before the, the uh, British left. And he said there was at least there was organization there when the British were there, whereas after they left, it was just chaos. Um, very on PC thing to say these days, but there was some uh, benefits, I suppose, to colonialization as far as those guys saw it when they were there. Um, there was roads, there was um, systems were, were in place. There were all the systems and the roads were obviously there for the, the colonialists rather than the natives, but uh, there was some... Um, benefits, I suppose, rubbed off in them, but um, Africa certainly had a went through a bad time after the the colonization. The, the colonial powers left because there was no system in place to take over effectively to set up to run the country properly. It was just people were left to put their hands in the till and take the money and run. So it was pretty chaotic, and there was revolutions after revolutions. Uh, some countries I was there just after I was in Uganda, just after Idi Amin got overthrown, and everybody was hopeful that that was going to be uh, the end of that bit of chaos and war. Whereas it really was just the start of another war when the child soldiers sort of took over these two children as soldiers, and just it was more mayhem, mayhem after that. So I was just there in between stage. Rhodesia was the same. I was there just after the British. Uh, the, well, the British left with us, the, the black government took over. Um, it was a very prosperous country at that stage, whereas 40 years later, it's, it's a baskets case. So we all think we've got crap governments, but you really have to go to Africa to see what a really crap government is. <laughs> and it's it's scary to say, but we, I mean, we're dealing with that in Chicago here in the last 10 years because there was a giant um, organized effort to, to take off the big the big crime bosses, the big gang bosses. And they took all these big gang bosses and got them off the streets. Well, nobody expected the power vacuum that would come behind that. And when you have one guy that has, that has a ton of power and people follow him, yes, it's, it's crime and it's awful and it's disgusting, but guess what? It's organized. And when you have 10 people vying for his power, then you have shootings every day and you have these gunfights in the street and you have this unorganized chaos and it's it's weird to say because i don't think there is a right answer yeah i mean it's a we used to say a benevolent dictator is it's the best thing because you got one person looking after the running the country but hopefully he's he's a nice guy sort of thing but trouble is whenever somebody gets power and takes over a country 
it's not long before corruption takes over and before the head power goes to side and he's guess what he's not such a nice guy anymore yeah the old saying absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah um so hold on let's get back to the the moto guzzi how did you end up taking a cafe racer street bike across some of the most rough terrain i've ever heard somebody ride a motorcycle through well again it's the same pretty stubborn when it comes to things and i was going to buy a a, motor, a, motor, a BMW and I couldn't get a good price from a motor guzzy so I thought well I'll take that instead and turned it from a coffee racer put higher bars on it and screen and pop box and made it into a touring bike um, and I was going to drive to India at that stage which is mainly on tarmac roads we nearly all tarmac roads so I thought well that would have done the job and um, it turned out as I say I ended up crossing the desert and 700 miles of tra- desert sand and then another Five or six hundred miles of dirt track through Sudan, but the bike held up remarkably well. The suspension got hammered, of course, and the wheels got hammered, and the tires got ripped, and so on. But as you say, I got a pretty harsh treatment, but it was a good enough solid bike, and it's still going to this day. In fact, I've just ridden it to Australia last year, so uh, I've proved all the all the down down the stairs wrong in that one. You made the the original trek. Yeah. Well, after I got back, I started writing a book um, because I thought, well, nobody's done this before. And then one of my friends came and showed me a book by a guy called Ted Simon called going called um, Jupiter's Travels, and he'd done a similar journey three four years before me. Um, the guy was forty five. He was a journalist. He wrote for the Sunday Times paper. He I hadn't realized that somebody like that would have a completely different experience than I did as a 21-year-old rookie, just sort of heading off and seeing what was happening. So I wrote my book, uh, finally got around to it 40 years later, uh, which was giving me an added layer of interest, I guess, because I was writing it as a 63-year-old, writing about writing through my diaries from what I was thinking when I was 21. So I was able to, same person, but look at a different viewpoint of the various things that happened to me. But uh, once I wrote the book, one of my friends said, well, why not? You never got to Australia in the end. I ended up in Argentina rather than Australia. So I thought, well, let's have, a, have another go. So I took, um, I was still married, got married with kids and worked for myself. So I couldn't disappear off for a year and a half. So basically rode down to, rode for two weeks and parked the bike up and then flew home. And then two months later, went out again. Uh, so it took about six different journeys. And got the bike to Australia last March. After forty-three years of traveling since nineteen seventy-nine, I left. So I got a tremendous weight, tremendous welcome from the Motoguzzi clubs in in Australia, as you can imagine. Um, being on that Italian bike saved you, right? At a, at a second there, where they were wondering if you were, uh, as long as you're on an Italian bike and you're a good Christian, they were going to take you in. I remember yeah. that at one point in time. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was certainly an African met an Italian, Italian. Uh, uh, I think he was running a, a um, I think it was a leprosy leprosy colony. Uh, yeah, which was kind of, but nervous about staying overnight at. <laughs> Somebody wants to shake your hand. You sort of go, oh well, really? <laughs> yeah, but apparently the guys were all cured. It's just a, um, once they're cured, the disease can't be communicated any passed on anymore. But it's still the uh, disfigurement that lives on and 
in African countries, there was quite a uh, problem with the Africans didn't real didn't accept that, so they would they would be thrown out of their society, um, and ignored. So they had to find somewhere else for them to live. But yeah, yeah, that's interesting when you start to think about the difference in what we understand today about medicine and communicable diseases and technology and all that stuff, and then you put that on a on an African you know colony in the middle of not even a colony a tribe in the middle of Africa that knows none of that. And all they know is that that person was sick and got somebody else sick and they're not going to, they're not going to chance it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess there's been similar feelings with AIDS in the West and that sort of thing. It's been very, people get a notion about something that's hard to get it out of their head. And they'll look, uh, theories about uh, COVID as well from the more up to date, you know, it's nothing like a good rumor to spread fear in the population, you know? Right. So you ended up in Israel shortly after, you know, what was it, 25, 30 years after Israel was even established? That's right. It was, so it came into place about 47, I think it was. So I was there in 79. So it was still a very young country. It's still very, uh, there's a sense of adventure, sense of pioneering spirit in the place. Um, I was there last year as well. Um, actually, I hooked up with a guy who was a student when I was there. After forty odd years, met up again, so it's quite cool. Um, yeah, it's a country that's very controversial, whether you're one side or the other. It's hard to you try and sit in the fence in these places. You know, come from Northern Ireland, I suppose I try and do that because each both sides have their own rights and wrongs and viewpoints in these things. Um, you, know, you talk to one guy, you can see where he's coming from. Talk to his, talk to Palestinians, and he'll give you a perfectly good reasons for why he feels the other way. Uh, but it's an interesting, interesting uh, country, all right. I was there in 79, 79-80, trying to get from Israel into Jordan or Egypt, and I couldn't get across the border because of the wars going on. And I was there in two, last year to drive into, wanted to go to Jordan and then across Saudi because it's just been opened recently. But uh, ironically, the they wouldn't let me cross this year again because of the, the motorbike or something, some paperwork wasn't correct. So I couldn't believe it after 40 odd years, I came back and I still couldn't get across the bloody border. <laughs> and you were, uh, you were smart and didn't have them punch your passport with an Israeli, Israeli stamp, correct? Yeah. Well, they, do, they pretty much they know that it's not a good idea if you're going anywhere else in the world. Yeah. That was, you know, so hindsight being 39 at my age, I don't know that I would think about that. Yeah. So, uh, no, I sort of knew. I mean, you you do a bit of research in countries you're going to go to, and people tell you oh, don't get your passport stamped or you won't be able to go anywhere else. Um, I think it's it's uh, a bit easier now that a lot of the Arab countries and I talking to Israel, things have become a bit more easy, eased after fifty odd years of faction fighting between the factions, you know. Um, Northern Ireland's we would like that too. We still don't get on with the guys, but at least we're not fighting about it anymore. Yeah, right. It's it's weird because there's not much else in the world other than money and religion that people will take that hard of a stand for. Yeah, and it's very hard. Money's one thing. It's very hard to talk um, sensibly about people with when it's religion because people are so browbeaten and they believe that their religion is right and you're not going to talk them out of any other way. And thinking their religion is right and everybody else is wrong. 
least with money, you can maybe negotiate with them a bit. But uh, yeah, religious, that's a good point. religious, art, religious fundamentalists are non-negotiable generally. You're either with them or you're against them. Yeah. I always think it's super funny because it's it's kind of like communism versus capitalism. It's everybody will tell you it's just communism hasn't been done right. And when you start to talk about somebody's religion, and if you if you point out any of the negatives that they're in the religion, they just oh that they're not doing it right. Yeah, those people yeah. aren't doing they're not doing Christianity right, or they're not doing Islam right, right. And it's always like, well, yeah, but if you didn't have the if you didn't have the the end all be all that is religion, it wouldn't matter if you're doing it right or not because you would put human values over your religious values. Yeah, and I mean generally people people don't change their religion, you know, maybe there's a few do, but usually you get very intelligent people, maybe very intelligent people who are religious and they're they're still not going to change their religion. You know, they're they're just gonna take the religion that their parents had and they were brought up with, and that's as far as they're concerned. Which is basically the luck of birth that they ended up a Christian or a Muslim or whatever else it is, but that's they still think that they're right and nobody else is everybody else is wrong. Um very few people actually change their religion like somebody would change a job or a career or something like that, you know. They stick to what they what they've been brought up with. So let's get to the desert. How did you end up <laughs> deciding to go through five hundred miles of desert? on a bike that was not built for off-road at all, let alone desert off-road. Yeah. Well, as I said, I was a bit stubborn in these things, I guess. But basically, we got across the uh, Lake Nasser, which is the border between Egypt and Sudan. And there was a problem with the boat. They didn't get the boat unloaded quick enough. And the boat was to meet up with a train that would have taken us across the desert. Uh, and it was probably the first train that ever left on time in Africa. Because by the time we got off the boat, the train had left. So myself and a couple of other guys were uh, a couple of uh, Danish and a combi. There's a Canadian couple and a, a Datsun Cherry, would you believe? And we all, and like two English guys in the Land Rover, so we all decided we drive across because on the mo- on the map that somebody had it said there was a road across, which we thought would be a dirt track. But generally in Africa, just because it says there's a road, it basically just means that that's the general direction you go into if you want to get somewhere. It doesn't actually mean there's any sort of surfaced or any attempt made other roads so really it was just the desert to cross in the direction we had to go which was follow the railway line so at one stage i think quite a few miles ended driving along the railway line itself driving over the sleepers you can imagine that would do my suspension no no end of harm um but the bike made it done a little bit of off-road riding i suppose and the bike was able to keep going overheated and um Stand, get everywhere, all the rest of it. But we managed. I mean, I think the worst day we did about ten miles driving and pushing and digging all day. We covered ten miles, so it was pretty hard going, as you can imagine. Um, one of the combis didn't make it; had to be abandoned. The other one got such a hammering it was uh, written off at the end of it. And the that's and Sherry was the same. It was pretty much a write-off by the time we got out of out of the desert at the other end in Khartoum. It was just a guzzy, and the the Land Rover did all right. So uh, it had the severely severe uh, makeover after that. So if you wouldn't have tried that, how long would the wait have been for the next train? I think it was another train in about a week's time, but it took me about a week and a couple of days to get across. So the train actually beat me over, it beat me anyway. So it was a bit of a waste of time in a way, but it was a tremendous experience. Yeah, you wouldn't have had the adventure. No, something we can look back at now and say that was fantastic. But 
some things are best looked back on. Some things, are, if somebody said to me, do you want to do it again? I'd say, no way. <laughs> well, that's, that's a lot of what we look back at and we remember, right? Those are the, the, the times when we're at our absolute yeah. most destitute and we think about giving up and we, and we get our shit together and, and take the next step. And that's when we look back and go, Oh, that remember that time you don't remember like, Oh, you remember that time I sat on my couch and watched Netflix for six hours. (laughs) Nobody remembers that. No. And I think that that's what, that's what we're going to see is you're going to see a lot of people as they get older that are in this younger generation that are not going to have stories like that because everything has been so nerfed and, and, and made so safe. Yeah, I mean, there's such a, a culture for health and safety now in the West that the, you have to think about everything you do and we're, we're, worry about what the risks are and put that against the reward and is it worth doing that risk? Um, and I think the culture sort of, I mean, it certainly saved a lot of lives, saved a lot of people falling on pavements and falling off tall buildings, whatever else. But it has taken the excitement out of life a little bit, you know. Um, when you look back at riding a bicycle, you didn't have helmets, you didn't have mobile phones to know where all the kids know where mommy doesn't know where you where you were, and so on. Um, and when I was going off around to where my parents had been speaking to my parents for maybe three months at a time, because there's no means of communication from these places. I think I phoned home from from Cairo one day, and it took me all day to get through. It cost about five pounds, which is probably about fifty bucks now to make a five minute phone call. Whereas last year when I was traveling across places like Iran and Pakistan, I could just get up my mobile phone and get on WhatsApp and make a free phone call home and say, how's everything going, you know? So the sense of adventure has gone from that way with the internet and the, the way the world has just got smaller with the ease of communications now. I wonder if we'll see in the next hundred years some sort of virtual reality that simulates that sense of adventure with the risk and with the reward that doesn't actually have the physical risk of you breaking a leg, but it has kind of the, the tie-in to your, to your neuromuscular system or something where you still feel it. You oh, know? Like Hunger, Hunger Games or something like that, you mean? Kind of, kind of. Or like <laughs> The Matrix. You remember, Matrix, you remember yeah. the movie The Matrix where they were <laughs> yeah. kind of like, they were tied in back here? Yeah. Like if you had that and, and, and you could go through, you know, Chris Donaldson's adventure that was all pulled out of his brain and uploaded into this main server. And you could experience that for, for a certain period of time. You still, not too sure. I'd recommend you would that. have the same memories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Hey, I, way things are going, you wouldn't know. I think about how amazing it'll be because I don't know if it's like this there, but here, here in the United States, it's such a materialistic society and everybody is just, Working, not everybody, but majority majority of people are working a job to pay a bunch of bills for a bunch of stuff that they think is going to make them feel fulfilled and they're buying more stuff and the fulfillment's not coming with it. So I think about how amazing it would be if we had a virtual reality where you could literally have anything you ever wanted. And at that point, living in that for, let's say a month or two months, you're all of a sudden going to go, oh, I don't get the feeling that I think I'm going to get from all of that. And then maybe you come back to reality with a totally different idea. Well, I think it's nearly happened already. I mean, you read about these kids who won't go out of their house, won't go out of their bedroom just because they're just living on their computer. And in a way they are just living virtual reality. They're living through the screen. It's not a very exact, they're not putting on, maybe maybe they are putting on these 3D headphones or uh, sight viewer things. 
No, but people are living in this, oh, in a screen in a virtual world and not partaking in reality a lot. I think, which is a bit sad. But whether it'll be a, a um, reaction the other way or not, who knows? I don't think there will be because people do what they want to do very much, and they very much go the easier route. Um, I've called a big my book going the wrong way because um, as I say I left for Argentina I left for Australia and ended up in Argentina so you can't go much further wrong than that but it's also uh, I wanted to sort of as you say uh, promote the, going the, the harder route you pick the road less travelled or the road that's going to be more difficult more challenging because you will get more out of it you'll get you'll get memories out of it you'll get a bit of feeling of uh, achievement you, you could Take a, if you want to go to Australia, you just need to jump on an airplane, but you won't get any personal reward from that travel. But you will if you drive a 45-year-old motorbike. <laughs> so was it, in the, was it in Sudan that you got to the point where you, were, you lost the bike and were ready to give up? Well, the bike was certainly falling apart, but then the suspension was cutting across uh, through the, the, uh, the jungle, if you like. Um, from a place called Wild to Sudan. There was no petrol stations between the two, even though they're sitting on billions of gallons of oil now. At that stage, the place was bankrupt. Um, some of the suspension locked up solid, and the only thing holding the front wheel on was the, the brake lines. So I managed to um, make up a, a Heath Robinson system using nylon rope, made up a sort of shock absorber system with that, um, which actually worked quite well. I once I got it fine tuned. I was going to copyright it back, but uh, it's amazing what you can do. But necessity makes you fix things and work around problems rather than giving up. Um, the bike, the other good thing about the bike compared to modern machines is it's pre-digital age. So if something breaks on a, an older machine like that, you can fix it very often. You can see how it works and take it apart and try and mend it or, or make good some other way of, of making that part work. Whereas now mechanics and cars and bikes, they don't really fix anything anymore. They just see which pieces, what part is broken, throw, it, throw that away and fit a new part. Uh, whereas in Africa, they can't get the parts so quickly. So they would have a, a, um, a culture of making something else fit or fixing the piece that was there before and using it again. Uh, whereas this, you know, we just bought a new washing machine the other day because the old one wouldn't work, and you don't fix them anymore. You just it might just be a fuse, and it might just be very silly, and everybody just—it's so expensive to get somebody to fix it. You just throw it away and buy a new one, which is uh, crazy when you think about it. But that's the way it goes. I'm old school. I I get I get YouTube up, and I learn how to take it apart, <laughs> and I've rebuilt my 17. No, not 17. My 15 year old LG wash machine. I had to rebuild everything inside the other, well, probably six months ago, replace all the shocks and put a new heating element in it and put a bunch of stuff in it. And I'm, I, but that's still nothing like you had a guy actually make you brake pads, right? Yeah. Around what do you make pads. them out of? Well, you've got a brake pads of a car. There were something similar. We basically cut them down to fit and redrilled the holes and made them, made them fit my machine. That's so cool. Calibers, uh, and they were funny enough. They worked for years and years because they were obviously much harder uh, density of, of pad, and they 
the ones that I used, but they never wore out. But I think they were just wearing wearing my brake brake discs out rather than the pads. <laughs> yep, yep. You were it was such a such a hard surface material. You were just yeah. eating apart the brake the rotors. Yeah. So I left off at the end of the sedan. Um, I'm going to get back to the rest of the book, but for for the audience, how do you end up from sedan? Talk me through how you got from there to Argentina. Well, um, so I went down through Uganda into Kenya, Tanzania. We're making our way to South Africa, which was in the middle of apartheid at the time. So there was very few uh, ships or flights in or out. I was trying to get to Australia still. But the only thing I got was a, a was a yacht race coming through from uh, Indonesia to Rotterdam. And a guy stopped in Cape Town for, uh, for stuff. And uh, one of the guys in the boat hurt his leg, pulled the muscle. So I got, he was, they needed a crew. Uh, turned out the guy was going to Belfast, uh, but that's another story. So I got his place. I talked my way onto the boat basically by saying I had a bit of sailing experience, which wasn't too big a lie, but my sailing experience was basically sailing dinghies, uh, which I'd be fair, I did tell the guys. And it was afterwards I sort of said to them, why did they um, pick me? Because you know, I'm sure the mothers, other people would have been more experienced. But he said it was that was a point to consider. But the main point to consider when you've got somebody living in a boat for five or six weeks is whether they can get on with the rest of the crew and whether they think you're going to be able to be stuck in a boat, in a boat the size of a garden shed uh, for that period of time. So that was more to what they were worried about than actual experience of running a boat because that can be taught. But if you don't have the uh, wherewithal to cope with the the aggravation and the dangers and the hassles, then you're not going to be able to to work properly. So I think I was able to cope to uh, pass that test fairly well. So yeah, I got the, the nice thing about that was the uh, the race was sponsored by a, a shipping company who shipped the bike to the states. So I joined it there about three months later in LA, rode up to. Um, to Canada, across Canada, down to North Carolina, where I worked for a while to try and replenish, replenish the wallet. And then thought, well, I may as well go to, I'm not going to get to Australia this way, but I'll go down to South America. So I rode through South, Central America, got a ship to, got a lift on a old DC 6 to, uh, to Midian, Colombia. And unknown to me, that was right in the middle of the 80s, where Pablo Escobar was probably at his highlight. I didn't notice that the rest of the country, everybody in the country seemed to have a submachine gun strapped to them and they were looking very nervous. So we got out of Colombia as quick as we could. Uh, ended up in Bolivia where I sort of ran out of luck. The bike was getting hammered with pretty much its last legs. And I got hepatitis, so I managed to get some money shipped over, sent over from home and ended up going back home and convalescing and back in Belfast out of money and out of out of ideas really, I just went back, went to the work and joined the rat race. Um, and it did, it did okay. Uh, I think a lot of the um, sort of trials and tribulations it had was able to put them in good use to my business world and spent 30, 40 years running businesses in the UK and Ireland. Um, until, as I say, three years, four years ago, well, I was actually living in Dubai at the time. Uh, I thought, well, I may as well write this story because if I don't, people people occasionally ask me what happened, and I thought, well, 
I must see if I can write a book out of it. Um, I was never very intellectual at school. I was never what we'd call an academic, and I thought of writing a book was pretty horrific. But as you say, I was able to get online and do a few courses, and um, anything you want to do, it's, it's all available now. You can learn how to do it. So um, published the book, self-published the book a few years ago. It's now got 1,200 uh, five-star reviews. It's had tremendous reception. Been on the best-selling list on Amazon a few times. So, um, I mean, to say if everybody's got a book in them, and certainly if I can write a book and be a bestseller, anybody can. I say that sincerely. I think there's something that resonates with the human soul when it comes to that kind of hero's journey, that that walk about, and that exploration, and that that kind of 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 life. I know whenever I hear somebody that is going out of the norm and trying to achieve something that is not normal that everybody else does. I, I gravitate towards those people. I love talking to those people and listening to those people and learning from those people. And there's something about that, that we all just gravitate towards too. And it's probably because if you do believe in evolution, we all kind of started in the same tight little area in the middle of Africa. And then over hundreds of thousands of years, you know, traveled throughout the world and populated the entire world so the majority of us have that sense of exploration inside of us because mm -hmm. it's generational yeah yeah i mean i tried to write about i suppose because i'm a wee bit older now um, i mean the journey i made to australia this time the first trip was a coming of age book this trip was a coming of coming of old age because it's not the end of my working life as such so coming to terms with, with that sort of change of lifestyle. No, but um, I think if you're writing a book or something like that, you have to be as honest as you can and tell it. It's more about life, life's journey and the things you see rather than just motorbikes. And I was able to put a, a different layer of, of knowledge and experience on it. So it's something that's um, attracted people. So be truthful about yourself. Tell, tell the... Uh, Tell, tell the book things that you haven't maybe told your best friends even, you know. Tell it as it is, uh, as, as it happens. Did you keep a pretty good diary, or did you write a lot of this out of your memory? No, I kept a pretty good diary at the time, and as I say, I did start writing a book when I came home, so I had a lot of manuscripts sort of done. Um, and then I had lots of photographs and stuff, so I was able to look at them too. And it's quite peculiar. It was quite a... Uh, amazing thing with the brain that whenever you you've been through something and be it sort of 40 years ago it's still in your brain somewhere under the fog of uh 40 years of alcohol misuse and normal life and another memories built on top of it but reading the reading the journal reading about diaries looking at the photographs and starting to write about it you could it's like scraping paint off a piece of wood. eventually the memories of the, the times become clearer and your recollection's still there. It's amazing how much life you came through. You don't remember what was said in the details like that very often, but you remember how you felt and what what happened so, sort of thing quite often. So I was quite impressed with my how, how everything came back to me. How do you think you took all of that, we'll call it ability to face adversity from that entire trip and then use that in your business life um different ways i guess i mean one of the one of the most uh recent and poignant ones was 
this was now 12 years ago, my property business got taken over by the banks just after the property crash. Banks here, basically, same as they did in the US, took everybody's property off them again. Um, they did it me by telling a lot of lies and forging documents and so on. Uh, but I ended up with no money and no properties, so I um, had to self-litigate, learn about the law and self-litigate, stand up in court against the a QC or barrister who's obviously very experienced and you're in his territory or up against the, in the land stand against the lands without any, without a really knowing what's going on, what you're doing. Um, and I think I was able to do that because it, it might've been difficult, but it wasn't as hard as driving a motorbike across the desert or facing up to a bunch of child soldiers in Uganda. It was just a, a guy with a stupid wig on and a, a judge with a funny hat, you know, was, uh, I was able to, to be determined, be motivated to do it and also be determined to, whenever it did get knocked back several times in the proceedings, uh, I was able to keep going and, and fight, fight, fight on and eventually succeeded in getting most of my properties back again. So I did certainly achieve, build a certain sort of um, motivation and not patience, but uh, determination, probably, I suppose. They still wear those stupid wigs? They do over here, yeah. Some things just need to go away. So You know where the... the, the image of self-importance, the feeling of self-importance. Do you know where those wigs came from? No. Like, where they originated? No. One of the princes or one of the kings had syphilis so bad that he lost all of his hair. And so he had to start wearing that wig. And then because he was royalty, he, everybody started wearing a wig to be like him because that's really how fashion works. Right. Uh, and so they all started, started copying him and it became popular to wear those white powder wigs where really he just had to wear it because he lost his hair because of syphilis. Well, that's quite a rightful way for, for barristers to wear them because they are a bunch of pucks written. Yeah. See? I better want to say it. I'll have, I'll have to look that back up again. I remember yeah. hearing that one time and I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And that, that needs to just go to the wayside. Yeah, no. Such a ridiculous formality. Lawyers are not my favorite people. No, especially when you're against them. If they're on your side, I guess maybe they're, they're good. Yeah, well, but... they're still liars and probably. The, the the law has nothing to do with what's right and wrong. The law is who's going who's going to win the argument. Yeah, and that's weird most, here. Who's, who's got most money? And that's weird here. We're dealing with that with our justice system as far as criminals is. We're we have a a justice system that is letting people out um, when they have committed real crimes, but then bolstering their resume with wins of situations where. It's not, you're not supposed to win. You're supposed to find the truth. Yeah. That's what the idea of litigation is, is we're going to find the truth, but they have this, this ego that means they need to win. And we just had just last Christmas, uh, two years ago here, Christmas, we had a guy that was let out. Um, he had multiple, multiple accounts of, of different assaults and they let him out and he ran a car right through a, right through a parade right. and killed a bunch of people. And he should have never even been on the streets. Yeah. Yeah, that's happened a few times here, that type of thing as well. But really, even in civil law, civil law, you know, if you've got a claim against somebody, um, if you're a rapist or a criminal of some sort, you'll get legal aid, you'll get a given a barrister and a legal team to, 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 to do your stuff. But if somebody, it's a civil case and somebody's done wrong to you, you don't get that. You have to do it yourself. And if you haven't got any money, basically, 
um, you have to do it yourself, which most people just aren't capable of or, or not have the drive to do it, or else you lose and the story you've gone. So the, the law basically doesn't exist. It's, it's just for the rich and famous rather than the, uh, the man in the street. Yeah. Uh, so there's it's, it's something wrong about the, uh, you know, some British especially like to say that they've got a very just society, but they really don't. You know, it's only yeah. just if you're rich enough to afford it. Yeah, I was talking to a, a gentleman that moved here and started a business. He's from India, and he said, I, th- I used to think corruption didn't exist in the United States. I said, no, corruption in the United States just costs a lot more money. Yeah. Yeah, Still well, here, you just can't bribe, you can't bribe the policeman on the corner. you got to bribe the politician or the police chief. Yeah, you know, it's the same in the UK. As I said, it's, it's nearly official corruption. You need to go right up the, the higher levels. The, the man on the street kind of... Or to be corrupt because you'll get sent to jail. But if you're a politician, you can do whatever you like because you'll never get sent to jail. Well, I think we I think we got through the majority of the of the journey. I'm excited to finish the book. I've I've just been nonstop um, with this thing since we scheduled this just just to get through it. And it's it's one that I don't like putting down. But um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and where they can get the book, and then I'll put the link in the show notes also. Right. Well, my website's chrisdonaldson.world. Uh, I've got photographs and links for the book there, but probably the best place is Amazon, the, the company we, which we love to hate, but we can't do without them um, because they've taken over the world. But they do sell my book very well, and they sell an audiobook on uh, um, on paperback, hardback, and uh, it's going very well. It's called Going the Wrong Way by Chris Donaldson. So hope you Excellent. hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you sitting down and taking the time with me today. Appreciate it, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.